Hello, my name is Justin McClure. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Lena Vertmuller, the director of Swept Away, Love and Anarchy, The Seduction of Mimi. The female art house filmmaker of the 70s. The first woman to ever be nominated for a Best Director Oscar. A foreign filmmaker who was impersonated not once but twice on Saturday Night Live. Really? By Lorraine Newman. Yes. Wow. That's how well known she was in the 70s. And now... Pretty much nothing. No. Uh, Kino recently put out like a Blu-ray box set, but as far as like critical writings about her work, not that much of it. And I was very curious about that going in because you and I had never seen any of her movies before this week. And there's so much hunger, there's so much appetite these days for female filmmakers and for kind of reclaiming the history of uh, unacknowledged women directors. Why not her? Uh, Especially that swept away was not only super popular, but it prompted a Madonna Guy Ritchie remake in the 2000s. <laughs> and usually when you say Swept Away, most people go, oh yeah, that Madonna movie? And you're like, no, 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 this is the original one <laughs> that made such an uproar when it came out. I had never seen any of her movies. You had never seen any of her movies. And was there a reason for that? Like... I don't know. I mean, she's somebody who went into Eclipse, I think. Mm -hmm. The films she was making in the 80s and 90s were, by most accounts, not very good. And she just doesn't seem to have a lot of champions anymore. She's somebody whose name is sort of mentioned kind of... In passing. Yeah, yeah. in passing, respectfully, but And she's still alive. She's in her 90s. So at the same time, there hasn't been that reclamation when someone has passed away. Mm -hmm. Even though that there was like a documentary about her that came out a few years ago. And last year, the Quad Cinema, when it reopened in Mm -hmm. New York, I think started with a Lena Vertmuller retrospective. So there's a bit of movement in that direction. So... I saw three of her best-known movies this week. Uh, I had a bit of a bumpy experience with them. Uh, I more or less like them, but I also have a better sense of why she's not in fashion anymore. Absolutely. I I was hoping that like I would put these movies on and I'd go like, ah, yes! Like, this is why she was so popular. Mm-hmm. And instead I saw them and went, yes! This is why I don't hear about these movies that much anymore. <laughs> but some of them are good, and yes. all of them have good things about them. So let's get into it a bit. But what do you know about her background? Well, I know that she came up in the industry as an assistant director for Fellini on Eight and a Half. That's mentioned in every biography. Mm. She started with her first film by making a social conscious kind of neorealist thing in 1963 called The Lizards. Mm-hmm. And then she decided, ah, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to make entertaining films. And she made a bunch of musicals that I could not find anywhere. Mm. There's no English subtitles. I saw like on YouTube clips and stuff like that, but nothing until the movie that was really her international breakout, which was Seduction of Mimi in 1972. The first one that we watched was Love and Anarchy from 1973. And I think an important thing for understanding her appeal in the 70s was that like her movies were very much loaded with sex and politics and the uh, intermingling of the two, which were topics that were very much on people's minds in the 70s and particularly in the cinema. You know, this was the time of Last Tango in Paris. I don't know, even like Deep Throat. You know, boundary-pushing movies. Uh, You know, there are other examples aside from that. And Love and Anarchy is about her two favorite actors, uh, Mariangela Mulatto and Giancarlo uh, Giannini. Giannini is her, like, uh, Marcello Mastrioni, basically. Yeah, he stars in 
I think all of her 70s movies. Mm -hmm. And he's this wide-eyed, like puppy dog-eyed guy who is great at playing sad, pathetic losers. But he can play so many different kinds of sad, pathetic losers. Like in one movie, he'll be like a rough and tumble brute. In another one, he'll be kind of like a smug dandy. Or, Or in this one, he'll be... Uh, just a quiet, freckled, like crazy-haired, yeah. revolutionary. So the plot of this movie, Giannini plays a peasant from the country who comes to Rome with this plot to kill Mussolini. He's a dedicated anarchist, and before he wants to kill Mussolini, he stays for three days uh, being sheltered in a brothel. And this brothel is in this kind of like beautiful piece of uh, uh, ancient Italian architecture, you know, uh, marble columns and statues and everything. And you get a lot of like Fellini-like, like tracking shots of uh, women's bodies and all kinds of women's bodies. She owes a lot to Fellini stylistically, Mm -hmm. which is one reason I think why I resist her a little bit. Not a Fellini fan? I mean, I respect Fellini. I, I like lots of Fellini, but, you know, there are certain directors who on some base level like rub you the wrong way a little bit and there's something about his i'm gonna sound like the guy in line at annie hall but there's <laughs> but, but 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 there's something uh about, about his like aggressiveness and his mm. boisterousness and like the fact that everybody's always yelling through all his movies and her movies that just kind of grates on me a little bit but while there's a kind of exuberance to Fellini's films i would say that Vert Mueller, she almost makes it more uncomfortable Mm. like what you're watching yeah like there's a level of i guess fun and excitement that's Mm. taken away with it almost a questioning of like oh you enjoyed this in fellini's film well look how it would like actually be well she doesn't identify as a feminist no she does not and i would not call her films feminist and yet they are the work of a female filmmaker i mean they're all centered around the idea of like identity of male Mm. and uh, female Mm. characters she often has these very hyper masculine heroes who she films very objectively Mm -hmm. who come across as very ridiculous and you know this brothel setting recurs in her movies and it's always also filmed very objectively um you you know my my girlfriend was pointing this out to me as we were watching uh the movie that if it were directed by a man the setting would probably seem either more tragic or or be filmed more leeringly Mm -hmm. or or maybe both and uh there are many scenes in this movie where giannini sort of sits around and he's almost like a non-entity in this presence while all the prostitutes go about their business. He is not the central figure in their lives, which it would be disconcerting, I think, for the sort of person who would hire a prostitute. I think the thing that I like the most in Love and Anarchy is that it's telling the story that you expect to go a certain way Mm -hmm. and then just kind of breaks it apart as it goes along. Mm -hmm. And watching her movies throughout this week, that's what she does in every single one of her movies. Yeah, so in this movie, uh, spoiler alert, folks, Giannini, as he spends these three days at the brothel, falls in love with one of the sex workers, and eventually the sex workers sort of foil his plot to kill Mussolini. Yeah, so what happens is that these uh, two women that are in his life, the one that he's fallen in love with, and the other one played by Mariangela Milato, who kind of loves him they make a decision that they will not wake him so he cannot go kill Mussolini Mm -hmm. and when Giannini learns of this when he wakes up the next morning he freaks out like a big giant baby Mm -hmm. like this act of 
trying to kill Mussolini would have defined his life and proved that he was a man. And because he can't do that, he just goes crazy. He ends up killing himself in prison after being beaten by the police. Mm -hmm. And the movie is ambivalent on whether or not it was all worth it. I mean, it seems to suggest that his symbolic gesture which is just going into a crowd and shooting a bunch of fascists yeah even if it was a failure has some significance but what significance that is is hard to determine no yeah like i felt the film ended in a way which was almost like it's really this man and these beliefs that define manhood for him Mm -hmm. Like, he's undone by that and destroyed by it completely. Mm. Like, the things that he's leading up to, his professed love for this prostitute, it just doesn't mean anything mm. when this this belief of, like, oh, this thing I was leading up to, this thing that was giving me this mythic and legendary backstory, mm. now that I don't have it, who am I? I'm nothing. And yeah. that his freakout is, like, every nice guy who's presented <sighs> with this kind of scenario. I will say I thought this movie was 30 minutes too long. Oh, yeah. There were many redundant scenes, mm-hmm. many scenes where I was quite bored. But Love and Anarchy is often considered her best film, but Swept Away is the one that I think is associated the most with her name. So if there's something I like best about her, I think it's the fact that, you know, even though she is a socialist, she's not dogmatic in mm-hmm. her art. Like, it's hard to kind of pin these movies down on saying any one thing. Yeah. Um, like, watching these movies, multiple people could take away multiple different things. Like, what I said about Love and Anarchy, I'm sure maybe if she, uh, Vert Mueller heard it, she'd go like, what? What are you talking about? That's not what the movie is about mm-hmm. at all. And I think that's a strength to her films. Mm-hmm. At the same time, something like Swept Away, watching it now, you're like, whoa. It's problematic, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I somewhat appreciated this movie. Uh, so the full title, Swept Away by an Unusual Death destiny in the blue sea of august Mm -hmm. from 1974 it's about a rich bourgeois woman played by mariangelo mulata and a boorish communist man played by giancarlo giannini and when we say boorish like he's a huge asshole like he's a misogynist he's tons of bad stuff and just his whole affect is rough and tumble Mm -hmm. she's on a boat with some of her rich friends he's you know manning the boat Long story short, they, they get swept away. They get stranded on a desert island. And though she has all the power in the regular world, he suddenly has all the power in this island world because, you know, uh, society, this this world that we've constructed with all its morals and everything falls apart and uh, politics all fall apart. And what reasserts itself is a certain uh, gender essentialism. And we should warn people that we're going to talk about a subject matter that appears in a lot of Mueller. Mueller's films, Mm -hmm. which is sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's treated sometimes as a joke in some movies. I feel like she has a a certain, like, Camille Paglia-ish sexual politics. Like, she's very interested in just this kind of very primal male female uh, especially the uh, idea of like a man dominating a woman and the woman kind of liking it yeah and yeah. falling in love with that idea I mean we're two guys talking about this so yeah I mean I, I don't entirely feel qualified to talk no. to talk about this although I mean I think you will agree it's different coming from a female filmmaker than if it was coming, coming from a man yeah. like I watched a spaghetti western that she made uh, the Bella Star story and considering that it was technically a commercial job it still tackles all the same themes, which is this amazing uh, woman cowboy is introduced being dominated by a man and she seemingly enjoys that domination. Like she can do anything. She's the best sharpshooter. She's smart. She can pull off a heist, but she likes to put herself in situations where this domination happens, but she's never shown as 
being above it. She's always shown as being like trapped in the situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that this is clearly something that is, I don't know, something that Vert Mueller is working through. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think art is a, as good an arena as any to work through this. And even in Swept Away, mm-hmm. like the man played by a Giannini, he's a huge asshole. Like yeah. he's never portrayed as like, I'm on the lower rung and like you're treating me like garbage. And now that we're equal, I'll show you that I'm the best. Yeah. The fact that he's a socialist doesn't make him a good person. No, right? it does not. Yeah. And the fact that like they form a romantic relationship mm-hmm. is icky, but you know, Vert Mueller's obviously trying to like talk through something here. Yeah, and she's also like she's she is a socialist, but she's also like an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Like she is opposed to these arbitrary structures that society imposes. Yes. So that's interesting. Yeah, like that's what the movie's about. Yeah. Even though that it's a very mm-hmm. unpleasant experience watching it. It certainly is. I mean a lot of people have talked about how funny this movie is. I did not find it funny. I didn't find it funny at all. Uh, I found it a bit of a slog being being trapped with these two characters. It's very cynical. And like, Uh there's any fun that they find in each other comes from like that sexual assault Mm -hmm. and that idea of domination. So it was difficult for me to feel empathy for Mm -hmm. this. But, like, I don't know, maybe when it plays in a theater, like, laughs are plenty or something like that. Boy, I have trouble imagining there being a lot of laughs when it plays now. I read a review (laughs) that someone, like, saw it at, uh, I think, at the Quad Cinema, and, like, the audience was, like, eating it up like it was a Marx Brothers comedy. That's interesting. Well, maybe, like, this is discomforting subject matter, you know? So, like, the way that you react is through laughter. Mm -hmm. So, right after Swept Away, she made Seven Beauties. And this is the one that she was nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. This is also the one of the three that I liked the most. Yes, well, it's technically, I, I want to say the most fun, also the one that deals with the Holocaust and has horrifying imagery in it. Yeah, it's a very peculiar mix of tones. And mm-hmm. again, it's it doesn't come to any one particular point. No. Um, but it raises a lot of interesting ideas. Essentially, um, her go-to guy, Giannini, plays a kind of slick down gangster in charge of this house of women. But to even call him a gangster no. is a little bit of a bit flattering. He's a small time hood. And yeah, he views himself as a big time and, gangster. And a self-styled ladies man and he's got seven sisters um, and that's why he has the nickname Seven Beauties. And uh, when he discovers that one of his sisters is also working as a prostitute he freaks out and he demands that she tell him who made her do this, which is her fiance. And he does this by strangling his sister, showing that, yes, he is also a garbage man and that he is awful, even though that he cares about these women. And he also gets some advice from the local Dawn, which is do something that makes people fear you. Mm -hmm. And what he does is kill the pimp. Accidentally. Accidentally. But then after he's killed him, he cuts him up into uh, three suitcases worth of body parts mails those suitcases all over the country and well wouldn't you know it he gets caught almost immediately and there's a very funny scene where he's like trying to elude police capture he's like you'll never take me alive and they (laughs) run up right from behind him and take him and so this movie out of all the ones that I watched was probably the funniest like Love and Anarchy had jokes swept away not so much had jokes yeah probably yeah Uh, you know I didn't laugh at them but Seven Beauties is the one that's like 
I can understand why she would have been nominated for Best Director. It's very, like, light on its feet. It's time-shifting narrative all the place, and mm. Oscar voters love that kind of shit. They also like the Holocaust. Yes. Uh, as a subject, I should say. Uh, <laughs> Not the Holocaust itself. Yes. <laughs> and here it's treated really, like, seriously. Really seriously, but I do wonder if there were debates at the time about, like, aestheticizing the Holocaust in relation to this, because the Holocaust looks so kind of beautiful in this movie and she also puts almost ironic classical music over it yeah uh, as if like to underline like oh these images of the holocaust you've seen before now look at them in this different context and you know all the prisoners are kind of put into formation in these like beautiful uh Mm -hmm. you know lines and, and it's shot in this kind of stark like almost black and white style I mean expressionist almost yeah like like perhaps a defense of it could be that the you know she almost visually depicts the holocaust as this big serious stunning operation and in the middle of it is this little worm of a guy yeah but the human beings inside like all the men that you see in this machine Mm -hmm. they look miserable Mm -hmm. and death can come at any moment and it's not treated as like a Mm -hmm. joke and uh, the main character Giannini uh, he considers himself this like man of honor Mm -hmm. this, this swashbuckling rogue type and you know the movie is just a chronicle of the various ways that he lies and cheats and is a coward and debases himself yeah that the thing that he strangled his sister for even trying to do Mm -hmm. that he would do it in an instant to save his own life yeah the fact that this is our hero Mm -hmm. you know in this in the story of of the Holocaust. Hey man, it's I'm, like, I, I mean, I don't mind that he's the hero. Like it's like, it, it almost makes sense that he's the hero of this movie just cause like, this is a senseless tragedy. Cause he even goes like, why aren't they rising up? Why aren't they doing something? Like, why aren't they fighting back? And then he's the one who's like, Oh, I don't want to do anything. I'm scared. Yeah, He's the worst person. I will there. sell out the people that are close to me to be able to survive the situation. Yeah. Again, I'm all for movies that are like men who think they're cool or really shit. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's my jam. Especially when it's, fun like in this movie yeah and man i love giannini's performance i mean he's just so um resolutely unlikable well he gets to play so many different modes in this one where he's like (laughs) at the beginning he thinks he's the coolest guy ever then he gets to play a weasel and then he gets to play like just a worm like the worst possible person Mm -hmm. who's realizing what he's doing is bad and is trying to do stuff to make it not happen but he'll still go through it anyway because how else can he survive Mm -hmm. Uh, he also has some great scenes with shirley stoller who uh, you may remember as the leading lady from the honeymoon killers and i did not recognize i did not recognize her as well and we looked it up and we were like wait we thought she was a one and done in the honeymoon killers nope she's appeared in tons of film including like Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Yeah. And like tons of studio The Deer Hunter she's yeah. in as well. Yeah, she's the SS Commandant who he sort of like sexually humiliates himself with. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it all builds to a finale where he realizes he is also a piece of shit. <laughs> so, man, again, I'm all for that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Lena Vertmuller's star shone brightly but briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 80s, very few, I think none of her films were successful. So after Seven Beauties, uh, she actually got a four-picture deal with Warner Brothers, and she made the first film, A Night Full of Rain. It tanked. And then they're like, uh, no more four picture deal. Like, go out on your own way. But she was able to continue making movies. At one point, doing the perfect thing to do in the 80s when you're kind of an art house director on the um, rocks, which is make a film for canon. 
Yes. Uh, she did one with Harvey Keitel, which mm. I did not get a chance to watch this week. It not held in very high regard. I, I'm very interested in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she just kept working. I uh, She did 16 plus like feature film projects after like that run in the 70s. She made Ciao Professora, which is one of those cinema paradiso exploitation films that, you know, companies <laughs> like Miramax released in the 90s. Which, as you pointed out, would haunt the um, like foreign section of Roger's videos. Yes. <laughs> where you'd be like, oh, that movie. When you're going through like like the bin to get two for 15 and you're yeah. like ah, so many copies yeah. of Chow Professor but she's you know more or less retired as a filmmaker now although mm-hmm. she sometimes she's directs operas she's 90, 90 plus yeah. I didn't know she was still alive <laughs> yeah, <actually>. she is. <laughs> um, but yeah she just had that documentary come out about her so uh, attempts are being made to reclaim her mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure how reclaimable she is and why do you think these films are so popular in the 70s and like for some reason like she was never able to kind of reclaim that magic internationally at least i think a lot of it just has to do with kind of what was in the waters mm-hmm. in the 70s like this volatile mix of like sex mm-hmm. and uh sexual politics male female relationships and like she was taking left it from, politics she was taking it from a perspective as well that like nobody had done in this mm-hmm. particular way before mm-hmm. and that there was something obviously very novel to see these stories told and she was also quite a personality yes. as well like she was on the cover of New York Magazine mm-hmm. in, a, in an article that the great John Simon wrote. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, uh, t- uh, terrible. Who called her the most important filmmaker since Ingmar Bergman, actually. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's still value in watching something like Seven Beauties, I feel. Yeah. Like, if I would recommend one that people should go check out, it's that one. Yeah, and I think the other ones are interesting to wrestle with as well. Yeah. So, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do. As per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, this week on our Patreon, which is $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club, we talked about nothing but trouble. And if you're like, wait, what's nothing but trouble? Of course, it's Dan Aykroyd's only feature film directorial credit... And we go into a little more on Le Cinema d'Acroyd. And we take a little pit stop on the Cinema de Chevy Chase as well. Uh, if you have not seen this movie, it's often considered one of the worst of all time. And please watch it. Yes. Or listen to our episode. Please give us $5 a month to get four exclusive episodes of The Important Cinema Club. And we're going to get into some real interesting stuff uh, as well because we're getting into Shocktober. Oh, man. And you also get the whole back catalog, which is about 80 episodes at this point. Mm-hmm. So our first letter is from... Matthew Kumar, and he goes, Hey, pal. I'm just going to (laughs) leave. I'm writing this letter from La La Land, or should I say Holly Weird? Wait, did you write this letter, Will? Finally, he said something I agree with. (laughs) Nah, I'll stop writing this letter the way I assume Will Sloan would (laughs) if he lived in LA. I didn't even know that was coming up next. This will be a quick one. After listening to your Lizzie Borden episode, I appreciated your choice to try and talk more about female filmmakers, in particular the challenge they faced. I think I've hit on your next subject. Who manages to merge that worthy topic with your love of, well, the kind of trash you usually hide on your Patreon episodes. Penelope Spheris, the director of the Decline of Western Civilization documentaries. Or, most notably, she found herself directing Wayne's World, on which she apparently repeatedly clashed with Mike Myers. And since that point was unable to work doing anything except directing broad comedies like the Beverly Hillbillies or the Little Rascals. In fact, directing two 
David Spade's films, though I remember liking Senseless, honestly, and our post-2000 work is even more of a bummer. Can I just say something about uh, the David Spade movie In and Out, which I don't, or not In and Out, uh, Lost and Found. Okay. I mixed up my 90s studio comedies. (laughs) There's a poster for that movie where David Spade is naked and he is holding a dog in front of his junk. Yes. And the tagline is, one of these dogs is Spade. <laughs> okay. That's a good joke. Anyway, I'm sure you'll be able to dig into all the deeper than I've bothered to, opening a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Lots of love, Matthew. So Penelope Spear is, is actually like on my list as the next woman director that I want to do. I am interested in her. I like Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 very much. And you're obviously excited to get back in that Jim Varney uh, mode and watch the Beverly Hillbillies. I, I felt that Jim Varney brought a quiet dignity to his performance as Jed Clampett. Were you a fan of Wayne's World when you were a kid? You know, I only saw it once or twice, but I did like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I remember the other kids were like obsessed with it. And it was a movie I never saw, I feel, at the right age. Yeah, I think I might have seen it just a bit too late. Thank you, Matthew. We will definitely talk, be talking about uh, Penelope Spheris in the near future. And the next letter is from Dan Bach, and it goes, Cinephile? I added a question mark there. I don't know how to word this question exactly. It's more of a rambling personal story. Just joking. But what I'm really trying to get at is, do you think it's better for a director to be a cinephile like Martin Scorsese or for them to not have such an immense knowledge of film history like Werner Herzog? Great podcast, Daniel Bolling. My feeling is that there is no right answer. I will say that sometimes we complain a bit about directors who seem to have done most of their living through films. Uh, This is a complaint that's often lodged at Quentin Tarantino, for Mm -hmm. instance. Um, And then you don't have to watch the Quentin Tarantino movies yet. You you don't have to. Uh, I mean, I do kind of like that Werner Herzog is somebody who seems to have like lived a very robust life. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I also think it helps to have like a pretty broad knowledge of art. I mean, I get really excited when I know a director like loves movies, loves Mm -hmm. watching movies and exploring movies. But at the same time, I I love movies made by directors who like just need to put it on screen. Mm -hmm. Like that's different, right? Than Mm -hmm. like a completely understanding the form versus someone who has stories to tell like Werner Herzog and he just wants to find different ways or interesting ways to tell it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, some directors who are like that and are not cinephiles, I'm not going to name a film that I watched recently. Maybe we'll get into it a few episodes later from a director that played a film festival recently and then you watch it and you go, oh, this is a director that made this that hadn't seen these types of movies before. Mm. So what they're doing, they think it's much more interesting than it actually is. Sure, sure. But, you know, it all depends on who's telling the story. So thank you very much for your uh, letter, Daniel. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And next week, we're getting into... Shocktober. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're starting classy with Todd Browning. Todd Browning, best known today, I guess, as the director of the 1931 Bela Lugosi Dracula, but his crowning achievement is... One of us! One of the us! The movie he made right after, Freaks. Mm-hmm. And he made a lot more movies about circus folk, and a lot of films starring Lon Chaney Sr., So, we'll, of course, be discussing Freaks, as well as uh, some other films from his checkered career. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not a director that's often held up as, like, a visual stylist or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but he is definitely someone who had his obsessions that he revisited over and over and over again to the point of 
neurosis pretty much yeah and did he drink himself to death i don't know but he's one of those filmmakers who just kind of stepped away from the industry and actually died in the 60s yeah so uh really looking forward to that and until then my name's justin clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening so it's october will have you made your horror films to watch list yet uh, I haven't, but I do plan to watch horror films. Do you? Yeah. And so you use it as like a jumping pad to be like, ah, this is a good time to watch horror films. Yeah. I mean, it's fun to watch horror films. Me too. I love it. I always make a big list out right before uh, October and I like to like check them off and I only watch one tenth of the list that I make <laughs> and they just show up year after year. But it actually like made me think that like on the internet, people love to, like you always see this on Letterboxd, it's like Hooptober or whatever. Oh, or Noir-vember. Yeah. Like, like yeah. this like way to force yourself to watch movies by doing in this like regimented list i can't do it can you have you ever tried to do anything like that um no i haven't although i do like the idea of watching um horror movies in october because the temperature feels like halloween night all through october the entire time yeah and there's just that feeling in the air and uh, it's good um hot chocolate or tea weather Mm -hmm. a good uh you know snuggling up in a blanket with your sweetie (laughs) weather or your friends it made me think of like how do people pick movies now now, right because you used to hear oh like this is playing on hbo it's beastmaster hey beastmaster's on mm-hmm. and like that's how films would become famous like you hear the story of it's a wonderful life went into the public domain mm-hmm. played all the time that's why everybody knows it yeah and like how will that continue from this point onward i wonder if netflix might, I... might be the opportunity like there are a lot of movies that like yeah, are not that well known in their theatrical run, but like like lots of people have seen something like I don't know, uh, Green Room, mm-hmm. for instance, because they just saw it on Netflix. But I don't know if like that like ah, it's a Netflix movie thing exists in the way that it would be like I say Rush Hour to you think TVS. Yeah. Because it played all the time. Yeah. Like, that doesn't exist anymore, I don't feel like. Although, maybe maybe it will at some point. Maybe, like, yeah. In the future, we'll look back on it and we'll think of, what are the Netflix movies? <laughs> ah, the Cloverfield Paradox. Yes. But at the same time, I find that frustrating. This idea of, like, you have to watch this movie before it leaves Netflix. It just makes me go, like... There's movies at this point that I'm like, I don't know where to watch them anymore. Like, they barely exist. And that's, like, crazy to me because, like, no streaming platforms have them. They're just nowhere. And, like, DVDs are the way that Amazon will, like, boost something that's, like, it's, like, what? A hundred dollars for, like, Hellraiser 7? Unfortunately, that's where you have to go through paralegal means (laughs) but even then like just not available anywhere yeah like that's scary to me because we're living in a world where like we do not have a data archival system in place to keep these things existing oh yeah yeah and i mean i'm sure you heard that story about how like people have found their Apple iTunes purchases just disappearing. Like, that's insane to me. Movies they purchased. Why would you want to purchase something digitally if it's actually owned by the person still and they can just take it away? That's not a purchase. That's a long-term lease. Yes, and is that the future of watching movies that everything will just be long-term leases? Well, uh, I hope not. And that's why you have to hold on to your physical media and drag (laughs) them from apartment to apartment as you keep moving. So when the apocalypse happens, you'll have your copy of, like, Joe D'Amato's, like... Emmanuel and the Cannibals, and you'll be like, this, this is what movies used to be. Yes, I will. And my <laughs> grandchildren will watch Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, and they'll say, Grandpa, Grandpa, stop showing me this. And I'm going to say, no, shut up. You sit down and watch this. So that Emmanuel and the Cannibals will be the only movie that will be like on your shelf in the way that like everyone has stories of like, oh, my grandparents only had like two VHSs. Yeah, after the apocalypse <laughs> strikes and my building is burning and I can only grab one thing. <laughs> 
do I grab do I grab my family photos or do I grab Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals? I grab that.